0: Well, good morning. It's so good to be here. I've been looking forward to this series for a long time. The team around me has been working on this as well, and we've been praying that God would do something extraordinary in our time together. But I need to open up with a comment to a specific group of people today. Um, I'm always thankful that people attend New Spring who are exploring and not sure what their faith is or if they have faith or or what they believe. And that's been something that's been very as I say, important and precious to me, because my dream for our church has always been a third and a third and a third. A third experienced believers, a third new believers, and a third of us here would be exploring our faith. And so every weekend in the messages, I try to make sure there's a takeaway for all three groups. But in this series that we're going to have for the next four weeks, this is pretty well focused on people who are Christ followers. So if you're here today or you're watching online or watching on television, And you're not sure what you believe. You're not sure you're a Christ follower yet. What's the the takeaway for this series? Well, I've, I've thought about this comment a long time, and I hope that this will make sense. It could be that you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ because you've watched those who are, and there's a big gap between what we say we believe and how we live. That's not necessarily hypocrisy. I mean, we believe in a perfect God, a perfect Savior, and we're very flawed, imperfect people. So consequently, it's very likely, if not even definite, that we're going to articulate who our God is, and yet our lives are going to fall short. Hypocrisy is pretending that our lives don't fall short. But here's the thing. In watching us who are Christ followers, and you see this gap between what we say we believe and how we live, it may be the very thing that's caused you to have a little bit of delay in moving forward in your faith. So here's the thing. Even if you're not sure you believe in God or believe in Jesus Christ, why not stay with us and walk with us in this series? Because it could be that it'll be helpful just to know what we're supposed to be as Christ followers. And for the rest of us, Power Up, I believe, is exactly, or the, the words that we're going to hear from God's word are exactly what we need to hear as Christ followers in 2020. Let me start by saying this. It's the obvious. And that is, we're in trouble. When I look at our nation, when I look at our families, I look at our individual health, when I look at our churches today, we're in trouble. And I think sometimes we sort of paper over that. Let me tell you one of the symptoms that I think the church in America demonstrates to cover up the trouble we know we're in. There is a quest in the churches today in America, and I know some of you are watching outside the United States, and and I don't know what you're experiencing, but here in the United States, what we're noticing is there's a a, a drive for, for entertainment in the church. Now, I may surprise you. I hope that the messages and the music and everything we do here is always engaging. And if it puts a smile on your face or causes you to laugh, that can be a good thing. But I think sometimes we're in such a quest for entertainment because if we ever take that veneer of entertainment off, we'll have to come face to face with the realization that we're in a lot of trouble. And we're in more trouble than we can possibly imagine. In America, our nation's in trouble. You don't need me to tell you that. I mean, the Bible tells us that in the times in which Jesus will return, well, Jesus himself said that those times could be compared to two other times in history. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, and as it was in the days of Lot. Well, to know what things were like in the days of Noah, all you have to do is go back to Genesis. And what you discover is that the world at that time was characterized by violence. I just read some news yesterday morning. And one of the things that shocked me was just how much violence there is in the United States. And, And it's not just random violence, it's... Husbands killing wives, and wives killing husbands, and children killing parents, and parents killing children. I mean, these are stories that 50 years ago would have been the story of the decade. Today, they don't even qualify for the story of the morning. Our nation has gotten violent as it was in the days of Noah. In the days of Lot, those times were characterized by every kind of unimaginable sexual debauchery. Well, that's where we are today. And when we look at our nation, when we look at the way people treat people and groups treat groups, it's, it's a terrifying thing. But it isn't just our nation. Our families are in trouble. You know, it's, it's like nobody really knows for sure what a family is supposed to be. What's a marriage supposed to be? What's parenting supposed to be like? What, what are our kids supposed to engage with parents? Our families are in a great deal of trouble. And I'll just tell you one of the benchmarks for me that helps me understand how much trouble we're in is individuals are in trouble. We're in trouble on the inside. In other words, we have a hard time living with ourselves. But here is the greatest concern that I have as I look around at 21st century America because to me, the biggest problem in America is not with the nation, it's not with the family, it's not with individuals. The biggest problem we have today is with churches. See, When Jesus started the church, he meant for the church to be the doctor, for the doctor to work on what's sick. But as I look at American churches, churches are in trouble. What I'm about to say next could be taken wrongly, and I'm going to ask you to hear the whole statement so that you will hear my heart. I have the privilege of being in many churches, and some of them are great churches, but one of the things that I'm noticing in many churches across our land is the aging of our churches. Now, as I said, you could take me wrong. Because I'm certainly not, you know, I'm I'm, I'm delighted that that people like me are here and people who are older. But I'm talking about not who is in those churches. I'm talking about who is not in those churches. Because, you know, here's the thing. Every once in a while church will reach out to me and say, Mark, would you tell us how to reach teenagers? And I'm like, you're not reaching teenagers. You're not reaching 20-somethings. You're not reaching 30-somethings. You're not reaching 40-somethings. Young in your church is 60 Now, that should just wake us all up and say, the reality of that is is we're looking at at churches in the United States disappearing in a short period of time. Something has gone very wrong. I'm so used to being at New Spring, sometimes when I walk into some of these churches, it's culture shock for me. But it isn't just the aging that's happening in our churches. There's a lethargy that I discover in many places. They gather together, they sing some songs, they listen to a talk, they give their money, they walk out, and then life pretty well forgets God for the next six days. And if there's an issue that's greater than any in American churches, it's with people like me, it's with pastors. I look at especially the United States and I look at the people who stand to speak for God and I honestly believe we have the weakest generation of church leaders since the false prophets of the Old Testament because in a time where ministers need to be opening the word of God and speaking God's word to change the culture, what I discover is a lot of the messages coming from people like me and I hope I'm not guilty because someday I'm going to stand before God. But it's like, you know, Pastors are rearranging the sock drawers on the Titanic. And so today, what happens and what's going on in our nation is we are doing what people normally do when stuff is broken. We start looking for power to fix the brokenness. And there are several kinds of power that I see families in our nation and individuals and churches employing. There's the power of self help. Hey, I like self help. I mean, I fly a lot, so I'm in bookstores at the airport, and there are all these self-help books, and hey, it's, it, there is power in self-help. I don't deny that for a moment, but many of us have listened to a lot of self-help seminars and a lot of recordings and read a lot of books, and what we've discovered over time is really the new guru is usually the old guru being repackaged, and then there is the power of better ideas or technology, and there is power there, and we've benefited from it. But what have we discovered, especially in the last 10, 20, 30 years of technology? Well, when technology fixes one problem, it tends to start three others. And here we are today, we have the greatest technology in the world, and yet our nation's in more trouble than ever, our families are in more trouble than they've ever been in, and individuals are struggling more than ever. Then there's the power of manipulation. Most of us don't admit that we employ the power of manipulation because that's a, an unpleasant word. But manipulation is just trying to make things come out the way you want them to come out. And I'm guilty and we're all guilty. And I guess there's a certain power of manipulation. But there's a limit to that power. Well, in a year like 2020, in an election year, I know the power that a lot of people are going to appeal to. And that's the power of politics. Politics. It is the idea that, yes, we're all screwed up in the United States, but it's because the wrong party is in power. If we get this party out and get the, another party in, this is going to fix all the problems. If we get this person out and get this person in, it's going to fix all the problems. Well, one of the benefits of being as old as I am, I have seen parties and candidates and leaders come and go. I've seen those political saviors arrive and then leave and others appear. And what I've discovered is, you know, I'm not saying our vote doesn't matter. It does. And you always, as Americans, need to be good stewards of your citizenship. But at at the end of the day, there's a limit to political power. And if you're thinking that someone's going to be the savior who's going to fix everything that's broken in our nation, it isn't going to happen. Well, I know the biggest power that people look to today, especially in our days of social media, and that's crowd power. It is the power of the mob to suggest what is right and what is wrong. In fact... I don't know about you, but so many times when I read stories and look at comment threads, what we are employing in our age today is mob psychology. I don't know if anyone has got the courage to say that to us, but that's where we are. You know, I'm not going to speak about our nation or our people outside the church. I just want to talk directly to churches today if history proves anything in the 2000 year history of the church it is simply this when the church appeals to one of those kinds of powers it always backfires when the church depends on politics i promise you it always backfires this is why as leader of this church i will speak right and i will speak wrong and if a leader does the right thing i will i will applaud that leader if a leader does the wrong thing i'll speak against that leader Our Savior is Jesus Christ. Our Savior is not a political candidate. It's not a political party. And that is the message of New Spring Church. Anytime the church appeals to one of those powers, be it manipulation, be it mob psychology, be it politics, be it technology, anytime the church gets in bed with any of those kinds of powers, it always backfires. So, With all of that negativity in the front part of our message, let's ask this question. Are we helpless? I mean, when you think about, if you're a Christ follower here, and you're thinking about all the trouble that I've talked about, are we helpless to impact that? Are we hopeless? I mean, because I think sometimes some of us kind of feel that way. It's like, well, we know that Jesus is coming, so let me dig a hole and crawl in and pull a lid over the top and just wait for Jesus to come back. is Is that where we are? Not at all. There is power available, and it's what this series is about. And that is why the title of our series is Power Up. Let me take you back to a particular spot in the Bible. Jesus has already conducted his earthly ministry. He's died on the cross. He rose from the grave, and he is talking to the seed of the church, the 11 hand-picked followers that he's picked, and he says this to them. And this is really interesting to me because Jesus said that he was leaving. Now, ordinarily, movements get started when the leader arrives. Our movement got started when the leader left town. And he said to his disciples, I need to go away. It's better for you that I go away. And he said, if I go away, I'm going to send in the Greek language another one who is just like me. And they knew but this time, by this time he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, God is a trinity and this is still impossible for me to wrap my mind around, that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Please don't write me after the service and say, well, it's like an egg. No, the Trinity is not like an egg, you know. Everybody's like, well, there's the shell and there's the white and there's the yolk." You know, it's three pieces of one egg. But no, that's not, you know. Some will say, well, it's like water. It can appear, you know, in steam. It can appear in, in vapor. It can appear, you know, as liquid in water. It appears as a solid Nice. ice. No, the Trinity is not like water. The Trinity is a Trinity, and always remember this. The reason why we have a hard time understanding this is God is not made in our image. We are made in God's image. So here is the thing. Jesus said, I'm leaving town. And he's basically said, if you read the Greek language, it's real clear. someone said, I'm going to send you another one who is like me. But you're going to be advantaged because he can go anywhere. He can be everywhere. He's not going to be limited by a body. It's why when Abraham Lincoln left Springfield to go to the White House, His last words to the people of his hometown that he would never see again were, I commend you to the God who can both go with me and stay with you. I love that. And so Jesus was saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hear verse 49 of Luke chapter 24 because it's where the series got its title. Jesus said, I myself will send upon you what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But you must wait in the city until... I'm going to read this quickly, then we'll come back and read it slowly. Until the power from above comes down upon you. Now, think about those three phrases that are in there. The power from above. So the power from above is not the power of new ideas. It's not the power of mob psychology. It's not the power of politics. Those are the powers that are down here. But Jesus said... I want you to go wait for me until the power from above comes down. And then it gets personal upon you. Now, he wasn't just talking to the 11 disciples. He was talking to the church. And by extension, we are still living in the church age. So today, what that verse tells us is there is power available from above that comes down and rests upon us. And Pentecost, it happened. You know, the disciples were praying, they were waiting, there were 120 people there with them. They just prayed and waited on God. And then on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came and it transformed, or He transformed everything. But there's one major distinction between the disciples and us. Jesus told them, You go wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit has already come. And, ladies and gentlemen, If we're not experiencing the power of God to transform situations, it is not us waiting on the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit waiting on us. Can I say that one more time? If our Christianity, at least in the United States, is powerless, we're not waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit is here, and the Holy Spirit is waiting on us to get it. That's what this series is about. Well, I still could hear someone say, Mark, I just think things are too bleak today. Well, here's some good news. When we look at the power of God, that power from above, one of the things that we discover is it tends to show up when things are hopeless. Now, let me just give you this as an axiom that will govern the rest of our series. God's power tends to show up when things are hopeless and it changes the narrative. How many of you could use a change in your narrative? I mean, some of you, you know, please don't raise your hand, but some of you are here today and you're like, Mark, my marriage could use a change in the narrative. It could use a change in the trajectory. My kids could, my, my story with my kids, there needs to be a change in that narrative. Well, the beautiful thing is God's power tends to show up in hopelessness and it changes the story. Some real quick illustrations. Talk about hopelessness. The Israelites were caught in between the pinchers of the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. They were going to get squashed. They couldn't go forward. The Red Sea was there. They were about to be killed by the most powerful army in the world. What happens? God's power shows up, opens the Red Sea. Israelites get across. As soon as the, the, the Egyptians get into the Red Sea, water's close and kills them all. That's the beauty of God's power. It shows up in a time of hopelessness, and it changes the story. When Israel was being taunted by a nine-foot-tall representative of the Philistines, what happened? God's power shows up with a teenage boy in a sack lunch and a bag of rocks, and it changed the narrative. When there was the pre-type of Hitler, a guy by the name of Haman who wanted to wipe out all the Jews, God used God used a beauty contest. His power came along, and it changed the narrative. Probably the story that's most like the times that you and I live in, there were three young men, three young Jews who had been carried away captive to Babylon and political correctness was the, it was the story of the day, mob psychology. And the king said, as he had already erected this tall statue, if you don't bow down to the statue, we're going to throw you into a furnace of fire. And there were three guys who said, we can't do that. We're in trouble here because our people were idolatrous. We're not about to bow now. And they were thrown into the furnace of fire. But the fourth person showed up and changed the narrative. greatest example of this is when Jesus Christ came into our world. And by the plan of God, as we'll talk about, we've got a series called Red Letters. The question's coming up as soon as this series is over. We'll talk about this one week. As was the plan of God, there were wicked people who hated Jesus, and they put him on a cross. Now, you want to think about hopelessness and hopelessness. Suppose you've been a follower of Jesus for three years, and you saw the cold, dead, gray body of the person you thought was the champion being pulled off a cross, wrapped up in white clothing, white cloak, white cloth, and put in a tomb. But what happened? The power of God showed up, and on the third day, he walked out of the grave under his own power and changed the narrative. Now, I want to give you a couple of verses right now, Christ followers, that are going to blow your mind. So I want you to hear both of these. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to just jot these texts down so you can refer back to them, or you can get on our app and look at them later. Here is the first one, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Bible says the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Think about this. Wrap your mind around this. We just saw that the the power of God shows up, changes the narrative. We said the ultimate example was when the power of God showed up and raised Jesus from the dead. Now, What we just read is the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is going to go back to Andover with you today, or back to Mays, or back to Valley Center, or Wichita, because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Well, someone could say, okay, okay, okay. I, I think I get this, but Mark, you know, raising Jesus from the dead, that was a really big thing. Probably the Holy Spirit in my life gives sample size power. That's why I have the second verse for you. You ready? This is Ephesians 1. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he wants them to understand something. So let's pick up on his prayer. He said, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. This is the, what's the next four letter word there? Same. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. So what the Bible tells us is not just that you have the same Holy Spirit at work in your life. The same power that the Holy Spirit used to raise Jesus from the dead is available and operative in your life right now. I want to go back in that verse and I want to pull out a little expression because... God let Paul talk about this particular power of God that comes along in the time of hopelessness and rewrites the narrative. In English, it says the incredible greatness of God's power. But if you were to look at this verse in the original language, Greek, in which it's written, it is as if God had Paul put all kinds of words for power together in one expression. I, didn't, I don't have this for you to look at today, but if you could read it, even if you don't know the Greek language, you would recognize three words from this, even if you read it in Greek. The first word you would recognize is the word mega. The second word is hyper, and the third word, well, it's dunamis, but you would, you would be able to know. We get our word dynamite from that. So Paul is like, to the believers there, I want you to know this mega Hyper dynamite power that is in you. Now, let's look at what those words mean because they're just different shades of nuance in regard to God's power. Mega means how big it is, hyper, I think this is my favorite. The word hyper means it goes beyond. You remember a few moments ago, I was telling you about all the different powers that people down here below employ. Hey, you know what? There's a stopping point for all those powers. Manipulation, there's a a limit to that. Technology, there's a limit to that. You know, any of those powers that that you want to talk about, there's a limit. But the Bible tells us that when we reach the limits of our power, God's power is hyper. It goes beyond. I mean, how many of us, think with me just for a moment, because Lord knows I've been here plenty of times. How many of us have been in the spot where there's some kind of trouble, maybe in our family, in our relationship, or at work, and we do everything that we can possibly do and it's still not enough or maybe you're just locked out of going any further Maybe your kid just says to you, that's it, that's sorry, I'm, li- I'm leaving, and, I'm, and you don't know where she is, you don't know where he is, you have reached the limits of your power. But the Bible tells us that God's power goes on. When we get stopped, and we can't say anymore, and we can't do anymore, and we can't think of any new ideas, God's power is still at work. That's why Paul said to the church at Ephesus, I am praying so that you will understand this mega hyper dynamite power, this same power. That raised up Jesus from the dead, and it's inside of you. Well, that begs a question, doesn't it? If that power is available to us, why are we where we are? I mean, how do we go from being hopeless to having this kind of power in our lives? Well, right now, I need to use a word. My team around me knows I've tried to come up with all kinds of other words to avoid using this word. But I've asked a a good question. I have said if on one hand the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available and we are where we are, what do we need? And the reason why I've started not to use this word is it got so stretched out of shape in the 20th century. But I couldn't find another word. So I'm going to use it. It's an old school word, but just hang with me for a moment. It's the word revival. Revival means new life. It means new energy. It means where there was lethargy and weakness before, there was suddenly a refreshing or re-energizing. And so when I look at what we need today, we need that revival. Now let me just, let me. and I know that a lot of you probably haven't been in church for, you know, a whole long time. And so for those of us who grew up in church, sometimes I think you're better off than we are. Um, but let me do my best to explain how the term revival got stretched out of shape. If you were to go back 120 years or so here in the United States to about the turn of the last century, there were revivals that took place in communities. And there was a sort of cool thing because the pastors of churches in this community would recognize that the Christians in the area were kind of cooling off. And the weird thing about it was, there would be churches that would get together. They might have denominational differences, but they would just say, we need, this fresh, we need this fresh empowering of God upon our people. And so the Baptist pastor and the Methodist pastor and the Pentecostal pastor and Presbyterian pastor and pastors of other groups would just come together. And all the people in that community would begin to pray and ask God to do something that would re-empower that community. And, and you know, who knows? It could have just been because God's people got together and did the right thing but they would often bring in a speaker who was an evangelist who God had gifted extraordinarily for this kind of ministry and all these groups would come together and they would hold services and pray and and what would happen is God's people would be refreshed and then lives would be changed in the community but over time <laughs> over time things begin to go into a downgrade maybe what would happen is the churches would come together and say, well, we really don't need to pray about this, but let's just put it on the schedule, and then all the churches will gather together, and it was less effective. And by the time I was born and came along and entered the ministry, pretty much what was happening were churches would just say, well, we have to put a revival on our schedule, and they would bring in someone to speak. And that's kind of how I got started. I preached my first revival when I was 16. I preached five when I was 17. But I'll tell you something I discovered pretty quickly is there wasn't much revival happening. It was, it was a scheduled group of meetings. But somehow people had lost that sense in America of what revival really was. And you understand now why I'm saying I didn't even want to use the word. Because for a few of us who grew up in church, a revival was just you go to church Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. I want us to understand the biblical concept of revival. In the Psalms, the psalmist wrote and used the word. The first verse is Psalm 80, verse 18. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Wow, we need that. In other words, revive us so our prayers will be answered. Turn to us again, Lord God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Now, if you grew up in church... Chances are you might have sung a song, especially if you're probably, you know, my age, 50, 60, 70, somewhere in there. You probably sang a song, and you might recognize where that song comes from. It's an old hymn. In Psalm 85, verse 4, the psalmist writes, restore us. In other words, give us back what we've lost. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Will you be angry with us always, won't you? And here's the song title. Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? What is revival? Because I really believe that is what we need in our churches and in our lives and marriages and families today. What is revival? Well, there is a scholar named Malcolm McDowell who has spent his entire life studying revival. He's a longtime professor, he's retired now, a longtime professor at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And I, I think if you ask a lot of church leaders, who is the specialist, who is the ultimate expert on the history of revival? A lot of guys would say, as I do, it's Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm wrote a book called, well, the original was called Firefall, now it's called Firefall 2.0. It's about that thick, and it's a history of revivals from the times of the Bible to the Jesus movement of the 70s. And in his first chapter on this topic, what is revival, Malcolm says something kind of interesting. He said there's a, there's a little bit of an argument in Christian circles on what revival is. He says some people say that revival is God's people. Getting right with him. And then he said, when they look at history like the Great Awakening or the Great Awakening too, they tend to say, no, revival is when a lot of people who are spiritually unresolved accept Jesus. And, and I love what Malcolm said. He said, if history proves anything, it proves that they both go together. Because when God's people get right with God, amazingly, many people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And so he said, let's not debate this, let's just say revival is both things. Okay, as we get ready to bring this series, or this first message of the series, in for a landing, I know many of you are watching this message outside the United States, and I'll let you think about your country. But here in the United States, what's our problem? What is the problem? Well, I travel. I talk to a lot of Christians. I, I, I engage with a lot of different ministries, and let me tell you what I hear. I hear that the problem is the wickedness in our culture, and that is a problem. I mean, they'll they'll articulate different things. You know, we have the abortion industry that's killing millions of babies, and they'll talk about you know all kinds of sexual debauchery and marriage being redefined, and and they'll talk about you know people in drag reading to. Children in libraries and all those things are problems. But are they the problem? Let me give you a couple stories in the Bible to help us contextualize this. A few moments ago, I talked to you about as things were in the days of Lot. Well, Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and he moved to Sodom. There were two cities there, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were so sexually wicked and perverse and evil that God decided that he was going to have to just wipe them out, he was going to destroy them. But as a courtesy, as a heads up, God came and talked to Abraham, who was, as we said, Lot's uncle, and basically God sent his messenger to say to Abraham, I'm gonna to have to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I know your nephew lives there, I just wanna give you a heads up, give you a, a, a warning. You know, Abraham never argued with God, he never said they're not evil, But he begins to do something really interesting and it goes to helping us understand the answer to the question, what's wrong in our nation? He begins to negotiate with God. He says, God, surely you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. He said, God, let me ask you a question. If you can find 50, if you can find 50 God followers in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city? God said, sure will, I will. If you can find 50, I'll spare the city. And Abraham got to thinking, maybe there aren't 50. God, if you find 45, would you you spare the city? And God said, okay, I'll work with you. 45 won't destroy the city. God, what if there are only 30? And God said, okay, if I can find 30 righteous people, I won't destroy the cities. And then Abraham got thinking, because he'd been down there before, not, not to participate, but to get them out of trouble. And he said, God, and he finally got to the end. He said, if, if you can find 10, if there are 10 people that are doing the right thing and following God, would you spare the city? And God said, all right. If you can find 10, if I can find 10, I'll, I won't destroy the cities. The next morning, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now, let me ask you a question. In the final analysis... Were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of all the wickedness and all the perversity that was in that culture? In the final analysis, the reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was that there weren't ten godly people there, and the godly people who were there made absolutely zero difference. Let me give you another story. This happens a little later, and the good news was there was a revival in this situation, but it took a while. It was the city of Nineveh that was probably, it may not have been as perverse as Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was very violent. And God had said that he was going to destroy Nineveh, but there was, a, there was a moment where God, in his compassion, wanted to send his preacher to at least preach to them to repent. And he called a guy named Jonah, a preacher, to go to Nineveh and tell the people what God was about to do. But Jonah was not, he was kind of a cold God-follower, I mean, when God said go to Nineveh, he's like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. And a lot of Christians are there today. And so God said, Nineveh, Jonah went to, headed for Spain. And you know the story how that the storm came up and I don't know exactly what God did. He did something underwater with some kind of creature that encaptured Jonah. And the reason why God had to use the sea creatures, he had to find some way to get Jonah halfway from Spain all the way back to Nineveh. And submarine was all the only way to do it. And thankfully, when Jonah preached in Nineveh, the whole city came to God. Now, let me ask you a question. What was holding up revival in Nineveh? Was it the wickedness of the people in Nineveh, or was it a what we used to call backslidden preacher? You notice when the backslidden preacher got his dials set right, Nineveh got their dials set right. So for all of us who are Christ followers, and we just get sick about what's happening in our nation... Can we take a deep breath and recognize that what is keeping America from revival is not wicked people because people who are not spiritually resolved are going to act like people who are not spiritually resolved. People who aren't God followers aren't going to act like God followers. We can't expect people who don't know our God to follow our God. But what we can expect is for those of us who do know our God to follow our God. And if we want to see things change in America, if we want to see things change in our families and in our own personal psyches, It's going to come back to us doing something. And I'll close with this. I've been praying and studying for this series for a long time. And I knew I was always going to get to this point where I was going to have to look you in the face and say, this is where revival starts. But my challenge was in knowing exactly what to say to you because I wanted to, like, preach the whole Bible, Because there's so many important truths. So I found myself, and please don't think I'm being hyper-spiritual that God talked out loud to me, but I just want to tell you what I did, and you can take this and do with it whatever you want to. I found myself praying, and I said, God, I'm going to be standing before New Spring Church, the greatest church in the world. And I'm going to tell people that I believe sincerely want to see a revival. Let me take a time out for just a moment. Over time, I got to know Malcolm McDowell. In fact, I met him at Mary Alice's dad's funeral, this professor who knew so, knows so much about revival. And we sat together and we had dinner at the Petroleum Club in downtown Fort Worth and Malcolm was just saying, revival is kind of a thing of the past. He said, you don't see it anymore. And he had asked me to tell him about what was going on at New Spring. And I started telling him, what was happening in our church and stories of lives being changed that we get so accustomed to here all the time. And I'll never will forget as tears just started pouring down his face and splashing onto his napkin and he tried to talk but all he could choke out was that's revival, that's revival. Well, we have seen that and the reason why I feel comfortable knowing that you're going to want to do whatever it takes is I know who you are and yes, we have experienced a little taste of revival, but our nation and our city and our families need us to be fully engaged in this power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So I I knew you would want to know where it starts. And so I asked God, and then God answered my prayer. And I know it was God because it was surely not what I was thinking. Here is what I felt God's Holy Spirit tell me about where revival starts. It was as if God said, my people confuse my desire for intimacy with familiarity let me give you this on a human level mary alice and i met when we were in high school she was a really committed follower of jesus christ and she was just convinced right at first i mean we're both teenagers she was convinced right at first that I was the guy she was supposed to marry. And I mean, she was committed to that. From, she believed that God had called me to be a, a preacher, a pastor. And you know, from the earliest days, when we first started talking about spending our lives together, Mary Allen said, Mark, I want you to understand, I'm fully engaged in what God has called you to do. Wherever God sends you, I will go. I won't ask questions if God has called you someplace. We will do this together, and it won't be your life and my life. It'll be our life together. I mean, from from the earliest of ages, I wish you could have heard her talk about what she believed God was going to do in our lives, and I never questioned she was fully committed to whatever God had called me to do. Every day of our marriage, I've understood that she is fully committed to me, and basically when we stood and committed our vows to each other, it was as if she gave her life to me. Now, let me just tell you, I could do a couple of things with that. If I recognize what an enormous gift I've been given, and I determine because of that gift, I'm going to celebrate Mary Alice every day. And I'm going to think about how can I commit my life to her, and what can I do for her, and how can I I let her know how much I treasure the way she has given her life to be alongside of mine. If I do that, I'm okay. But let me just tell you what I could do. I could do what human nature is, and that is to say, well, if she's committed to me, then I can take her for granted, and she's always going to be there. And, you know, I mean, here's the thing. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, she's going to be there, and I can take her for granted. Now, you and I both know what's going to happen. It doesn't mean that she'll rescind her gift, but it's going to affect the relationship between us. Now, that's just a human illustration. But let me tell you where it really goes wrong, and this is what I believe the Holy Spirit of God was teaching me. God comes along to you and me, and he says, I want intimacy with you. And if you, if you will accept my son Jesus, I will give you grace, and I'll forgive you of any sin that you ever have or, or will commit in the future. Now, if we understand what a treasure we have been given, that the God of creation would do that for us and we celebrate him every day of our lives, and we want to honor him and do whatever is pleasing in his sight, we're okay. But that is not what most American Christians are hearing. Most American Christians is like, God is my BFF. And, you know, no matter what I do, he's going to be there. And, yeah, I, I could blow up my life and do a whole bunch of sin today, but I'll just ask God to forgive me and everything is going to be okay. It doesn't mean that God's going to rescind his gift, but what we're, what we're going to experience is exactly what the American church is experiencing today, powerlessness. There's a distance between God. And it's what's resulting in these lives that Christians are living where the rest of the world looks at us and says, I don't see any difference. Do, do you know when this... You, you want an illustration of when this thing kind of started? How about at the very beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve? I mean, God put them in this beautiful garden, and the scripture says that God came and he, like, walked with them. I you know exactly what that means. It means in the evening, God would come and interact On the first day that God walked with Adam and Eve, I think they were in complete awe. The God of creation coming to hang with us. The God of, I mean, you know, as God was like showing them, you know, the different fruit and explaining DNA to them and all this stuff. You're like, wow. Satan is never going to get them on the first day because they're still too much in awe. But time passes, and God comes on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And after a few weeks of that, if they're having a discussion about God, Adam says, yeah, he shows up about this time every day. And then Satan comes. Now, listen, you can do with that what you want to do with it. I did not expect to preach this in the first. I just asked God. I said, God, where does revival start? I mean, and he surprised me because I wasn't expecting this. But God was saying, what is wrong with my people today is they confuse my love and desire for intimacy, for familiarity. In the book of Jude, which is only one chapter long in verse 4, the Bible says they have turned the grace of God into a license for sin. Now, here's the thing. It's as simple as this. If you need God's power in your life to be great and to go beyond those walls that shut you out, if you want to experience the same power that raised God from the dead, we're going to have to give God back his rightful place in our lives. I've got to finish real, real quickly. But there is a verse in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And what had happened in this particular place was that the Israelites were dedicating the temple and Solomon had prayed. And God came along and he spoke in the midst of that dedication of this Jewish temple. And God said, at times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Now, here's the thing. Watch what God says in regard to what I just taught you. God said, then... In other words, in a time of powerlessness, in a time of spiritual coolness, then if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, well, that's, that's where it's got to start. Because notice, he's going to say pray in a minute, but praying doesn't do any good until we humble ourselves. Humbling ourselves means God, you're God, and I'm not. You have a plan, and your plan is the right plan. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my... Oh, this is so big in, 20, in 2020. Seek my face means looking to say what God says about something, not looking at the comment threads on social media or listening to what's politically correct. Seek my face means to see what God says about stuff. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Oh, it's so easy for me to throw mud at the culture. Look at the awful stuff they're doing. Do you believe this? Do you believe that story? Do you believe what this person did? Do you believe what this political party is doing? It's so easy for me to throw mud at other people's wicked ways. But God said, Mark, if you want to experience revival, it's your wicked ways that have to be turned from. And you know what? There are wicked ways in me and there are wicked ways in all of us. I know most of you have never heard this song. I don't think I've sung it in 30 years. I was a kid growing up in church. There used to be this song that was sung. But the lyrics of it, I think, are fitting for us to close out with today. The lyrics go like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me. Put, Put me on trial, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be, recognize this, any wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I praise you, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill your word and make me pure within. I love this lyric. Fill me with fire where once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify your name. In this little stanza, O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. When I thought about that song, I thought, that's my prayer. God, we need you to send a revival, but start the work in me. Fix, help me. fix me. That is where revival starts. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're here today and you're a Christ follower and this message has touched your heart, I'd like to encourage you just to spend a moment in prayer with God. And say, God, look at my life and show me anything that needs to change. Because God's Holy Spirit will say different things to each one of us. But God, our nation, our families, our city, our kids, we need a revival. God, please do a work in our lives. And then, for those of you watching, if you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I was kind of on the outside looking in. But now that I hear about this, I would like to have a relationship with God. I would, I'd like to have this great power in my life. Well, the Bible tells us how it happens, that Jesus came into our world, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, and his blood was a currency that paid for everything wrong in your life and mine, and then three days later, he arose from the grave with the plan being finalized, and anybody who will put faith and trust in Jesus Christ and ask him to be their savior will receive that gift. It is a gift. So you say, Mark, I'm not sure I understand everything, but let me just do something with you. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer that calls on the name of the Lord. And I'll pray it slowly, line by line, and phrase by phrase, and you can decide if you want to say this to God. Are you ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave, and since Jesus is alive, I want him as my savior and my king in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one more second, please. If you just pray with me, I have a gift box for you, and and in this gift box, there's like a Bible like I preach from. There's a little book I wrote and some other gifts. It's just our way of saying thank you. For being with us today, and we want to help you start on your new walk with God. This won't cost you anything. All you got to do is go to any info center and just say, I prayed with Mark, and they will give this to you. It's our way of saying, let us walk with you as you take your first steps. God bless you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services.